Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamalski talk with Beth Gerstein, co-founder and CEO of Brilliant Earth. Hey everyone, welcome to The Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from Los Angeles, and I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from Nueva York, New York City. New York City. I just saw you in New York, Rob. It was actually super fun. It was nice to have 24 Carat Weekend again, like real human beings. I don't think people even expected to enjoy themselves as much as they did. I heard time and time again how wonderful all the events were, starting with, of course, the Gem Awards on Friday night at Cipriani 42nd Street, carrying into the 24 Karat Dinner, which was at a really cool new location downtown, another Cipriani in South Street Seaport, which I loved. What did you think of that space? I liked it, except I went to the wrong Cipriani. I had to, uh, <laughs> I had to go and like somebody actually saw me like wandering around and like picked me up in their Uber and took me to the right one. But so that made me feel kind of dumb. <laughs> That's right. There's like a tiny little Cipriani way down on Broadway. So this is the fact that there's like 900 Ciprianis downtown. Uh, it was it was a beautiful space. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, everybody seemed to enjoy themselves. It was a little surreal to see hundreds and hundreds of people mask-free, enjoying themselves, pretty lovely all around. So hopefully everybody's feeling good this week. And yeah, it feels like life really is returning to quote-unquote normal. And even though I'm back in LA, it's the sun is shining, the birds are singing, it actually felt... Yeah, sick. I hear your birds. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I hope they're not too loud. I think that's kind of a nice a nice touch. So we have a really wonderful guest today, somebody that I think the industry has looked to as an inspiration for years. She is co-founder and CEO of a business that all of us know because not only did it have an IPO last year in September, I think it was September, this business has been really leading the charge in terms of sustainability, ethical sourcing. I mean, way longer than almost any other business company that I can think of. Of course, it's Brilliant Earth, and it's Beth Gerstein, who's calling in from San Francisco. Welcome, Beth. It's so nice to have you. Thanks, Victoria. It's really nice to be here with you guys. Yeah. So is the weather as nice in San Francisco as it is in LA? Well, I can't speak to LA, but San Francisco is really nice right now. It's a great time of year. Summer is usually when it gets pretty cold, but springtime is is really beautiful. Right. What is that comment from Mark Twain? The coldest uh, winter I ever spent was the summer I spent in San Francisco. Exactly. That's why you see so many people in San Francisco fleeces everywhere at all times of year. Where's your office, by the way? Is it right in the heart of Union Square area? Or? Yeah, we actually just moved. We're in Union Square on Grant, which is kind of bordering Chinatown, but kind of in the central luxury district area there for retail. So great offices, really nice to have so many space. And it's beautiful. I encourage you guys to, to meet us and, and see our showroom. Is it virtual still or uh, do most people go in or? It's a mix. I think that we've always had a lot of flexibility there. We have another kind of corporate headquarters in Denver and obviously the showrooms that we have. So we're used to working across different geographies. And frankly, I think we've been thriving being in a more flexible environment. And I think our team really appreciates it. But, you know, we're also excited to start going back in and really reconnect with each other as well. So we're slowly starting to see people come back to the office, but we're being quite flexible. And I think that's the right approach for us. 
are you connected? Is the headquarters connected to the San Francisco showroom or? Yes, exactly. We're more in the back office with the rest of the corporate team. And, and then we also have our jewelry specialists as well, which is really nice. It, it really keeps you connected to the customer and, and reminds you every day why you're there. I've been to one of the, the LA showroom. I think that's the only showroom I've been to and it's been a few years. So I'm definitely due for a return, but it was in a great part of town and really nice, spacious place with tons of light. I imagine that's probably the architectural formula you follow all around. You you have 15 showrooms now, is that right? That's right. And we actually have one in New York. So if you want to visit there, we have one in Flatiron. We love it being open, more relaxed. We love city views. So kind of creating that joyful environment that's really pleasing for the customer. Almost serene and spa-like is, is what we're going for, trying to make sure that this is a really pleasurable experience and, and an otherwise could be a, a stressful time of life. I love that serene and spotlight. It feels like we all need our retail spaces to be that. It just sounds so meditative and relaxing. Well, we'll we'll get to that soon, but we always kick off with a question about your background. And I had read our contributor, our wonderful contributor, Karen Divis, did this great piece on you that just ran, I think it was last week, how you got here column. And I realize you're from Silver Spring in Maryland. I am. Yeah, I'm right outside the DC area. You know, I grew up in, um, I emigrated from Russia with my family in the late 70s, but we settled around the DC area while my dad worked at Goddard Space Flight Center, which is a little bit parallel to, I guess, what your parents did, but we'll, we'll get to that too. Um, but we lived in Greenbelt briefly and then in Gaithersburg, which is a little further out, I think, but... Oh yeah, we were neighbors. Yeah, exactly. So We must I, have overlapped. That's funny. <laughs> we probably did. It's kind of wild to think uh, how many ways we might have passed each other in the past, like at a playground or something, and how there's no way to know, but it's altogether possible. Well, so tell us about your background. And we definitely want to hear about your parents' really interesting jobs. I mean, what was it like growing up in Silver Spring? Both my parents work for the government. My father worked for NSA. He was a mathematician. My mother worked at the Pentagon. And so there wasn't a ton of talk at the dinner table about what they did. And frankly, it's still a little bit of a mystery to me. But like a lot of people in the DC area, both of them being in the government, I think was relatively standard. Standard. You know, one of the things that kind of stood out for me, you know, my mother really rose through the ranks at the Pentagon and just seeing the obstacles that she had as a woman and not being in the military. But, you know, she was incredibly committed and always served as a role model for me. So having that strong female leader, you know, right in my home, I think was pretty inspirational. But, you know, I, it was really a kind of regular existence. And I always liked math and science. So I decided to go into biomedical and electrical engineering. I'm not even sure I exactly knew what that was, but I wanted to solve the hardest problems that I could solve. And I always thought it would be really interesting to apply math and science to solve important problems in the world. And biomedical was always an interesting field to that end. So I decided to get my undergrad in, in engineering. And at that point, I was still pretty young. So I decided to get my graduate degree. And it only made sense that I would go and, and try and apply that engineering skills that I had developed. So I got recruited to this satellite communication startup in San Diego. There were about a hundred of us and we were working to launch a satellite and be able to communicate to this communications device. And that was amazing and incredibly thrilling. But ultimately I realized that my heart was really with business. I wanted to be able to make a broader impact on the world. And so I decided to go to business school. Stanford has a great program with entrepreneurship. 
and specifically with a really nice focus on sustainability and social enterprise and ended up meeting Eric, my co-founder, while I was at Stanford. And he had done a business plan around thinking through new experiences in jewelry and, and creating a potential new ethical segment and was talking about it with me one day. And it was something that I personally felt really passionate about. It's something that I really understood from the consumer standpoint. And so we decided to start Brilliant Earth out of my apartment. That was about 16 years ago now, and the rest is history. It seems very common now to hear about socially responsible companies and business school classes in sustainability, but was it more unusual then? I think that it was starting to become increasingly important for customers to really be able to buy brands and products that shared their values. Priuses started to become more popular. I think there were a lot of people who were buying organic foods. I think it was probably more unusual that there were entire businesses that were founded on purpose-driven principles. And so we didn't really have a playbook there. We really created our own. But in some ways, I think that was really freeing because I think it allowed allowed us to develop the company that we wanted to, that really reflected our own values, that was based on transparency and sustainability, that was innovative. So we didn't really have a box that we needed to conform to. And I think that was pretty exciting. We also had, I think, a lot of skeptics, you know, from both inside and outside the industry in terms of, is there really a market that's going to care about this? But, you know, we inherently thought that this was incredibly important. You think about diamonds as being such an emotional purchase. And it only made sense to me that for an industry that had a lot of social environmental issues, that people would really want to understand the sourcing behind their products and, and know that the company was working on their behalf. Do you you have a sense of because the original selling point of your company was that you knew the origin of the diamonds and that's still a pretty big selling point for your company is there like a sense of how many customers are attracted to you because of that? Is it most of them or just about all of them? Or I would say that the ethical sourcing and the mission of our company is one of several important factors for the customer. This is a customer that doesn't want to compromise on design, on quality, on experience. And so everything really, I think, is important. You know, for us, sustainability, transparency, and origin is kind of table stakes. It's foundational, but it's really important that you have a lot of those other layers. So, you know, when you ask customers, they really want that feel good experience. They want to understand that we're working on their behalf. Transparency continues to be incredibly important, especially given what's going on in the world. And we're continuing to reinforce that to our customers, but it's important to kind of understand the different facets. And, and yes, I am using facets purposefully, <laughs> given I'm talking to JCK. When you started Brilliant Earth in 2005, this was really new for the industry. They were still grappling with how to talk about these things. And only in the last few years has it become so mainstream. But the fact that there are so many companies now touting their ethical sourcing and their sustainability credentials, does it put pressure on you to elevate the conversation again, to sort of rise above what now feels quite common? 
Yeah, I think that it's important to think about ESG and sustainability in so many different facets and just continuing to improve. So we actually just released our sustainability report where we talk about how we're making progress towards all of the goals that we're setting out to. It's always good when others in the industry are are focused on their carbon footprint, on increasing transparency, on helping to build a better future, especially if you look at artisanal miners and just some of the challenging aspects in the industry. So I think more people around the table trying to do good is only better and helps to push us forward. I welcome it and I want the industry to continue to do good. You know, I'm on the board of Diamonds Do Good. It's really important to me. And I think it's important to speak to the consumer about the work that you're doing. So all of that, I think, is a positive. And, and, you know, I, I still think the industry has a ways to go, but I'm glad to see that there are people taking steps. So you just went public. Congratulations. I guess it's not so new now. Six months ago, actually, today. What? Six months ago today? Wow. Congrats. So is that really, aside from like the obvious like conference calls and having to report, and does that change how you do things? I mean, does it change how you look at things? There are some changes overall. I think it's actually been really exciting and it makes us more deliberate and focused as a company. There's just more discipline there. And as we're communicating how we're delivering growth and thinking about innovating in this industry, I think it helps us to just set an even more clear vision. It helps us to set clear objectives and and have that financial discipline that, frankly, we've had it all along as a bootstrap company. It's always been important for us to manage the business in a sustainable way, but there's just increased accountability, which I actually appreciate. And do you check the stock price a lot? Like I wrote a book, even though people tell you not to do this, I always check the reviews and the numbers and stuff like that. Do you check the numbers and the stock price all the time or do you try to tune it out? I, uh, my 12 year old son loves to um, tell me the stock price in the mornings. <laughs> And, you know, he gets a lot of pleasure in that. Um, But, you know, overall, I'm not really too concerned with the the day-to-day fluctuations. And, and, you know, obviously, there's so much volatility now with everything that's happening in the market with inflation and, and the invasion. So I feel like it's best to put our heads down to focus on the business. It's a, a, another discipline that I think I'm going to have to continue to work on. If you're a fan of podcasts, you know that listener reviews help make them possible. Please rate, review, and subscribe to The Jewelry District wherever you may listen. And now, back to the show. I'd love to talk about, and we have a number of questions that Rob really put together about lab-grown versus mined and how how your business sort of sees and how you see those two categories coexisting or whether or not you see lab-growns eventually cannibalizing the natural diamond market. What What's your take? I think that there's an important place for both. The lab-created aspect is exciting and innovative to a segment of customers. Some of them, frankly, would either not buy into diamonds or it's a different affordable affordability level. So I think it actually opens up the marketplace more. And I think it's a a plus for the industry. We've been offering lab for about 10 years now. We introduced it in 2012. And it's been exciting to see the inventory grow, to see a younger audience respond well to, you know, what I think is a, a differentiated product. And there's definitely a place in the market for it. Our job as a retailer is to be transparent about different sources, to really be able to offer beyond conflict free diamonds, as well as our you know, lab-created diamonds and let the customers decide and, and make sure that we have a comprehensive product offering for that younger consumer. 
And, you know, a lot of people talk about lab-grown diamond prices falling. Uh, do you see that eventually becoming an issue as far as sales? And has that been a, an issue for you? Or We don't see it like that. We've been selling, as I said, lab for over 10 years. We see continued success in our average selling prices over time. And, you know, I think customers are excited that they're able to buy larger carat weights at affordable prices. And they also really like the mining free aspects as well. And frankly, like demand has been very strong generally in the industry. So that's also been a normalizing factor. And do you see lab-grown eventually surpassing natural diamond sales at your company or if they haven't already? You know, we don't break out percentages and we really think about that engagement ring sale at a high level. And we also think about what is important to customers, which is, you know, they come to us for design. They make a lot of different trade-offs based on the budget that they have and they end up picking the product that they like the best. Do you have any thoughts on like what motivates a consumer, especially a socially conscious consumer to go for a natural diamond after all the negative publicity and what motivates people to do lab grown diamonds? Like, is there any thoughts on, on what are the kind of the key motivators? So in terms of those that prefer natural diamonds, I think many like that history. They like the romanticism and you know what it signifies being born in the earth for over billions of years. I think that's really special to customers. For other customers, they like the mining-free aspects of lab diamonds. They like the technology in a lab and they like the beauty and affordability. And they may not have any preconceived notion in terms of what the emotional significance of, of a lab diamond is. It's just a, a more open philosophy there. And so we see both shoppers really. And our goal is not to change anyone's mind, but it's to offer a pretty broad selection for both and be able to make that customer happy regardless. When you say that it's a shopper with no preconceived notion. Would you say it's generally for lab a, a younger shopper? You know, I, I would say the younger shopper is just a, a lot of openness. So yeah, I would say the younger shopper tends to gravitate more towards lab than an older customer. You know, I have a question about transparency in the lab-grown space. Because one thing I've noticed, and I've been working on a special report for JCK this month on lab-grown, and so I've looked at a lot of lab-grown sites, and I don't think I've come across one where they talk about where actually their lab-grown diamonds come from. So there's really, I feel like, a lack of transparency in that space. Are you open about where you source your diamonds? And if not, why not? I would say if you compare it to diamonds that are mined, that if you're thinking about a manufacturing facility that's actually creating a lab diamond, you just don't see the same scale of social and environmental issues. To me, it feels like a very different sect in terms of actual practices. So, you know, you don't have to worry about the diamonds being mined in violence and child labor, because essentially, like, you're talking about a very different type of process. So to that end, I feel like you're solving different problems and having different solutions there. You know, we have a nice collection of sustainably rated lab diamonds that we introduced relatively recently. And those diamonds are carbon neutral. They all have accompanying certificates 
kids. And so I agree, like it's always better to be more transparent and, and we'll continue to kind of push ourselves there. But I do think that the issues are quite different. Well, maybe we move on to talk about gold because Fairmind, of course, is a really exciting and still quite niche product. But tell us about your new Fairmind Gold collection and why you felt it was important to introduce, who it appeals to. Yeah, I, I love this collection. I think it is beautiful. We've seen great response from our customers. And we really, I think, develop the collection with our customers in mind. We're thinking about a customer that is really passionate about the storytelling behind the piece. And I think it's really tremendous that we are able to support responsible artisanal and small scale miners and providing a fair price for their gold. I think there's a lot of great benefits of fair mine gold. And we are really excited to tell the story in a way where the designs really reflect the beauty of the history. It's an interesting concept just because with some of the things that, as you mentioned, you know, some of the bad issues around mining, the idea of fair and ethical mining that supports people. It's still, I think, a relatively new concept as far, you know, on a consumer level. I think we've been talking about it in the trade for a while, but I think consumers haven't necessarily grasped it yet. I think consumers respond well to fair trade. And so that's kind of their parallel. I think within jewelry, it's probably um, earlier, but I think that that is what they respond so well to is fair trade, being able to empower communities and people on the ground as it relates to miners. But I think that it'll only grow in popularity as we continue to tell the stories. And I think that's what's so powerful is being able to connect emotional products with these emotional stories. Do you go to the jewelry shows much? I mean, like, have you been to JCK Las Vegas and Couture and all the other? I go to JCK Las Vegas every year. I'm excited to go this year. Um, and, you know, it's a great opportunity, frankly, to connect with suppliers. That's what I like the most is to be able to see people face to face. And that's a, an exciting thing. This is a very relationship driven business. And I think it's really important to have those discussions. No doubt. And so have you been going since the beginning? If so, that's what, almost 15 years you know, I was just telling the story that we actually had a hard time getting into the first JCK show because you had to demonstrate $10,000 of sales. And that was insurmountable at that point in, in, in our history. And so I remember we made a sale and we're high-fiving that we could go to the JCK show and, and meet new suppliers. And, and you know, we've, we actually have met a lot of great suppliers at the show. I bet. Yeah, it is. I mean, I remember my first show in like 2000. So that was way long ago. But yeah, it is pretty overwhelming but it's essential if you're going to do business in this industry. I was just speaking to somebody who called you. He said he considers you one of the best brand builders in the jewelry industry. When you think about building a brand, what is the most important thing for you? We think a lot about building our brand. And frankly, I think it's an evolution, but it's, it's really about building that connection to the customer and understanding who you are, what are your values, and being able to speak to that in a reinforcing way across a variety of different channels. So for example, for us, you know, obviously ethical sourcing is incredibly important to us and we're constantly introducing new collections, our sustainability report and keeping that front and center. It's really part of the DNA. Our Brilliant Earth Foundation and giving back is another kind of core component there. If you think about design for us, that's something that we are very focused on in terms of creating trend forward, leading edge, design that 
has a lot of data-driven understanding behind it. And so we're constantly introducing new design collections. You know, we think about it as how we tell the story for design, sourcing, a premium, high-quality product, a really exceptional experience across all of those channels, and then just continue to execute on that and drive the awareness and continue to up-level it. You know, you're mostly a U.S.-centered company, though I know you do do business overseas. Do you expect to make a push internationally at some point? Yeah, we see international growth as a strategic objective for the company. As you mentioned, we're already shipping to over 50 countries, and we do see a lot of brand resonance there internationally. So think that there's some great opportunity, and we'll continue to keep you posted there. I I have a question. I've been doing some research around Gen Z lately. In fact, our next podcast guest in about a month will be a Gen Z consultant who's 23 years old and has a lot of strong opinions about the way companies need to market to his generation. I wonder if you've done much research into Gen Z and how they differ from millennials and what that means for jewelry marketers. Yeah, we think a lot about Gen Z and millennials. I think it's a a pretty blurry line, frankly. And and what I see a lot of the traits that we speak to in millennials is even more true true for Gen Z. So it's obviously incredibly digitally native, social first, it's really important for you to build that social community and talk to customers where they're really existing right now. I think it's a, an audience that is you know, somewhat skeptical and that really appreciates authenticity. So making sure that you're true to your values, that you're really speaking in an authentic way, I think is very core to this audience. It's quite diverse. So I think inclusivity, becomes even more important, whether it's in the products that you offer, in the customer experience, in your marketing materials, all of that, I think it's really important to speak to that with inclusivity. And I think sustainability is just table stakes. This is an audience that just expects that their products are going to have responsible sourcing, have sustainability in mind. And I think it's even more important to be able to speak to that. So you have these showrooms and it's kind of the kind of classic omni-channel model, brick and mortar plus online. Is there any kind of customer in particular that really prefers the brick and mortar experience? You know, we see a, a wide range of behaviors. You know, it's a considered purchase where customers like to have more of a touch and feel. I think there are some customers who are really comfortable purchasing online. Maybe they'll chat with us or do a virtual appointment. And there are some customers who make an experience out of it. They come, you know, with their fiance or their partner and they want to touch and feel the product. And I think that our goal is to make that experience very seamless. And whether you're purchasing in our showroom or you're purchasing online and you visit in between, like we we want to make it easy and seamless. So I think it's it's a much more fluid behavior versus this one customer type really needs to come in and, and see the product. So you guys just took Russian diamonds off the site. Uh, what kind of reaction have you gotten to that? We've had a great reaction from our customers. I think they really appreciate that we were proactive at removing all of the Russian diamonds off of our website and great response from our team as well, which Brilliant Earth is is really important. Yeah. And I I think you're one of the first people to at least say publicly. That's right. And we, we were proud of that. 
I'd love to hear your thoughts on 2021 and the success of the jewelry category. There are so many competing theories. I imagine it's, it's the answer lies in some combination of all of the above, but do any of the reasons cited for jewelry's strong performance in 21 resonate more with you? I was really excited to see so much renewed enthusiasm in the category. My take is that 2021, like 2020, was a challenging year for a lot of people personally. And so giving gifts that had real meaning and value was important. And I think people showed their love and, and commitment to each other through fine jewelry purchases. And it, it created a lot of excitement. You know, obviously the the fact that relationships were strengthened, people tended to get closer as tends to happen. But I think during the pandemic happened even more. And, and that has created this huge increase in the number of weddings that are happening this year and, and in the coming years. I think all of that just is fantastic for the industry. Yeah, I think that was a nice note to end on. Thank you so much, Beth. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing it. And I appreciate you having me on. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you'll join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.